Ruth chapter 3. Remember what Naomi said to Ruth at the end of the second chapter. She said, uh, it's a good idea. In fact, let's put it the right way around. Ruth said, Boaz told me that I can go and glean amongst the young men. And, and Naomi, whoa, whoa, wait a second. She sees something going on. She says, hang on a second. It's, it's a good idea for you to go and glean among the women. You stay with the women. You're safer there because Naomi may have something in mind for Ruth. And so this is where we find out what plan this older lady has in mind. And let's be honest, older ladies sometimes do think this way. All right, so uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? It is not Boaz, our relative, with whose young women you were. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Let's just drop down to the end of the chapter. We'll read the whole thing. Uh, when we come back to it. But let's just drop down to the end. Verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. And if you're wondering what happened in between, we'll look at that after we sing a hymn. So Naomi had two big issues. The first one was how to survive the day. And in chapter 2, we see how God worked to provide through the gracious generosity of Boaz. Not just for Ruth, but providing for her mother-in-law. The other issue she had is that she had no descendants. The family line had come down and it had stopped with her. Now, is God going to do something about that? That's what chapter 3 is all about. So let's look at it and let's bear in mind where this whole story is going. Because here's, the, here's a bit of a tension that we, we need to feel as we read through Ruth. When was Ruth set? Remember how it begins? In the days of the judges. This is the period of time between uh, Joshua and the time of the kings. And once you get into the time of the kings, you pretty quickly get to King David. And God makes promises to David that one day his son, his descendant, would sit on the throne over all of humanity. And David is just blown away by that. This is in the meantime. And so, how are we going to get from this completely broken down, corrupt society 
down to David, ultimately, and then beyond him, finally, to his greater son, Jesus. So all of that is going to become clearer in chapter 4. But the amazing thing that is that to get to chapter 4, we've got to go through chapter 3, which is so gritty and real that actually it can almost be uncomfortable at times. It's one of those passages in the Bible that we tend to sort of cover over and, and put some, uh, some nice veneer on it to try to make it sound okay when actually what it's saying isn't too okay. Let me put it this way. Chapter 3 of Ruth, if we really look at what it says, should make us get nervous. But by the end of chapter 3, we will be absolutely thrilled with the two characters in it. It's kind of like a soap opera, only completely different, because these two don't fall. Okay, now, we're going to look at it, and we're going to work our way through it, and we're going to keep that in mind, that if you want chapter 4, with this incredible provision of God that goes right the way down to the Messiah himself, you've got to have chapter 3 first. Two ordinary people in the midst of uh, extraordinary times with a wonderful God working uh, through them. And yet a part of God's work through them and in them is their own integrity. And if they didn't have integrity, God would have worked around them. He would have worked another way. God's in charge. God's got a plan. God's plans cannot be thwarted. But God chooses to work through people that trust him. And walk with him. And if you want a role model to follow, I would suggest Boaz or Ruth are about as good as you're going to find. So let's look at the passage and see what I mean. So this first couple of verses, Naomi talking to Ruth. Notice what she says there. Should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? She's showing concern for her daughter-in-law. By the time we get to the end of the chapter... She's going to say that Boaz will not rest until this matter is sorted. That kind of repeated vocabulary is easy to miss, but it's just an evidence of of being well written, this balancing beginning and end. And so she says in verse 2, Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? He's threshing tonight. He's winnowing. Now, let's just... Pause and make sure that we're, we're clear on what, what she's implying. A relative. In older Bibles or in older church services, you might talk about the kinsman, kinsman redeemer. This is a provision that God made way back in the law of Moses. He provided not only for uh, the gleaning laws that uh, foreigners and and widows and the the people who had no provision, they had provision because God said, make sure that they can access food. It's just even within the law, uh, the grace of God coming through. But he also provided for perhaps the greatest negative circumstance, which would be widowhood. If, If a woman is widowed, In that culture, she is absolutely, hopelessly in trouble. Except for the fact that God has provided. The nearest relative of her husband has the responsibility to take 
uh, the, his brother or his cousin, whatever it is, to take that person's wife and to marry her and to continue the line in the name of the deceased. That, that means that a woman like Naomi, who is utterly hopeless, isn't utterly hopeless, because there's provision built in, which is why Naomi's very alert to the fact that Boaz is a relative. It's not just, oh, that's nice, he's related. No, it's significant that he's related. And Naomi's wondering, she's thinking, she's, she's hoping, she's praying. Maybe he's the one. Maybe this is God's provision. Maybe there is still hope that I won't die with no future beyond me. And so she talks to, to Ruth and, and she tells her to wash and anoint herself, put on your best perfume, okay? Um, put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. Don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Go, uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. What is she saying? What do you think? Look your nicest, right? Yeah. Then what is she saying? This is the bit you hoped I wouldn't ask about, wasn't it? What, what does she mean, uncover his feet? Okay, take his shoes off, or more likely lift the blanket, the, the kind of the garment. It's typically their outer cloak, they would kind of lay it over like a blanket. Uh, it's hard to sleep when your feet are out. I know that, I'm long, my feet are often out. But, uh, you know, so if you're sleeping outdoors, you tend to cover your feet and then you can sleep. So she's saying, you know, uncover his feet. What, what's she saying? Okay, she wants him to wake up in the night and see her, and then what? She's hanging up her hat. <laughs> She's hanging up her hat, yes. So, I, I well remember this, because uh, when I was learning Hebrew um, at Bible school, we... Ruth was the first book that we worked through, and, and it's such a, a thrill to, to work through this, and uh, the book of Ruth, and, and be looking at the Hebrew, which is just such a bizarre language to look at, but to actually be reading it, it's an amazing thing. And, and I remember coming to this point, and my teacher, it was only me in the class, which was somewhat intimidating, but my teacher said to me, so what's going on? And, and I, I came up with a very, shall we say, sanctified explanation. I said, well... Um, and I, th I, sort of, I saw it coming, so I'd done some research. I said, well, the, the word for the, the hem of the garment there is the, the same word that's used in Isaiah 6, of the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. It speaks of his authority uh, in terms of the, the tassels. You know, when Joseph in Genesis is given a, a garment by his father uh, with sleeves, an uh, implication would be, we talk about multicolored, it's probably sleeves actually, but that wouldn't make a good musical. Uh, but but there, it would have tassels, it would have, you know, kind of some significance in terms of authority. She's sort of saying, I want to come under your authority. And I gave this whole really safe explanation. Uh, and I remember my teacher looking at me with a sort of grin on his face. And he said, that's very nice. Very, very safe. And all that you've said is true. <laughs> but he said, let's not miss the obvious here. Naomi is suggesting that Ruth should go and put herself in an utterly compromised position 
with a man who may have been drinking. Doesn't have to have been drinking. It certainly doesn't have to have been drunk. But certainly they're at the harvest. Uh, you tend to celebrate in the evening. Uh, it's a, a notorious place for things to happen that shouldn't happen. He said, let me just put it to you this way. It's kind of like putting two teenagers in a car, in a car park in the dark and they're drunk. And I, I sort of went, oh, <laughs> I didn't want to say that. But that's what it is. Now, that raises an issue for us. First of all, what is Naomi trying to do? Because we, we try to make it sound so safe and so sanctified, you know, almost as if Ruth's going to church and singing a hymn or something. But actually, Naomi seems to be almost manipulating this situation. Uh, and I'm not going to say that she's all wrong or all right. I'm going to leave us to wrestle with that. I, I gave her credit in chapter one where a lot of people just say she's bitter and angry. I just think she's devastated in chapter 1, and yet she shows faith. Here, I'm going to just leave it hanging for us that either, on the one hand, she is uh, being faith-filled, and she's uh, moving things along, hoping that things will work out prayerfully, because Boaz, if he's considerably older, which we'll discover he is, is never, the kind of man that he is, he's never going to, propose, shall we say, to Ruth. He's never going to move things forward. He's he's sort of different generation. And so uh, Naomi may be thinking, we've got to get his attention here so that he realizes that Ruth is a possibility. Or maybe this isn't Naomi's finest moment. Maybe Naomi's taking things into her own hands in a way that is potentially utterly inappropriate, leaving these two people in an almost impossible situation. I'll leave that for you to wrestle with. But let's remember that Bible characters are not automatically right just because they do something. And equally, if they're wrong, that doesn't mean that, you know, we condemn them. We just look in the mirror and realize that we too are imperfect, right? And God's a God of grace. Now, Ruth agrees and she goes to the threshing floor. So let's follow the story through a bit. Here, verse 6. She went to the threshing floor, did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, doesn't mean that he's, he's drunk. It could just be content with a, you know, the evening celebration of the harvest. It, this is not you know, Boaz completely out of control or anything like that. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. She came softly, uncovered his feet and laid down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, Yahweh. Jehovah, may you be blessed by the faithful one who keeps his promises, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or, sorry, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Okay, let's pause there. What does the Bible say about uh, sexual immorality? What does it say we should do? Flee. It's, it's kind of uncompromising, right? It doesn't say, you know, stand firm. It says flee. 
And I think we need to recognize that uh, sexually inappropriate uh, situations are incredibly powerful. And it's not just certain people that are vulnerable. Every one of us is vulnerable. Emotionally, physically, whatever the, the circumstances may be. And the Bible does not suggest that we treat it lightly. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to lust, get rid of it. Don't need to do that, literally, but he's saying this is serious. Now, Ruth and Boaz are in an incredibly compromised situation. How in the world do they maintain their integrity? By the way, a lot of commentators that write about this say they don't. That they say the text doesn't state it, but it's so obvious what must have happened that something must have happened. I don't think so. I think the text is pretty clear on several points here that Boaz is a man of integrity and she's a woman of integrity. And if they fell inappropriately in this moment, I don't think he would be praising the Lord. Typically when people are sinning, they're not praising the Lord in that moment, right? She wouldn't be being so deferential and respectful and he wouldn't be respecting her integrity and her reputation. I don't think there's any hint in here that these two compromised their integrity in this moment. But I think we would do well to pause and recognize that this is a massive, massive issue. We've talked about marriage in the last couple of weeks. We've talked about parenting, relationships. If we don't think that Satan is out to compromise relationships in this church, we are utterly naive. And that means we really need to think through uh, these kind of realities before we find ourselves in this kind of situation. Because I tell you, I'm going to put my hand up and say, I don't want to try and do what Boaz does here and succeed. Because I'm not sure I have it in me. Placed in an utterly compromised situation where nobody will know in the dark, will our character prove to hold firm? The Bible doesn't even suggest we try to find out. It says flee. And so you have a couple of other examples. There's David uh, and Bathsheba, right? She's in the line of Jesus too, interestingly. Remember David, when the, the time when the kings go out to war, David was in his palace walking along the roof and he looks out and there's Bathsheba, this stunning woman bathing in full view of the king. She probably wouldn't assume he's watching. But he watched, he saw, he pursued, he sinned, he created an utter mess. Another example, I suppose, is Joseph, right? Joseph in Potiphar's house. There's uh, Potiphar's wife who would have been on the front cover of Egyptian Hello magazine. And she was trying to seduce him and he was unwilling to compromise. Even though he's in a distant land, away from the, the people that know him, away from the, the God who he worships and is uh, wanting to honor. He, who's ever going to know? In fact, it's even probably to his advantage. If he had gone with her, it probably would have helped him. And as things turned out, it got him in all sorts of trouble that he fled. But he did the right thing. Even going so far as to let the coat go in order to get out of that room where she was. Now, David, Joseph, David, Joseph. That's quite a straightforward compromise, uh, a comparison. Don't do a David, do a Joseph. In a compromised situation, in an inappropriate place, get out of there. Don't stick around. 
But this one's more difficult. I can't think of anything much worse than this. Not just the circumstances in terms of the threshing floor, the uh, culture of the day. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Not only had Boaz, uh, you know, tired and all the rest of it, but let's keep in mind the bigger picture as well. What would his motivation be here to sin? What would her motivation be here to sin? Any thoughts on that? First of all, Boaz, why, apart from the obvious, why might it be to his advantage to sin under these circumstances? Any thoughts? Let me read you the next two verses. He says, verse 12, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. That'll do. Let's stop there. What motivation might he have to sin? Interesting way of putting it. So he... So, so Boaz knows that somebody else has the right to marry her first, but she's in his bed, in quotes. She's right there, and if he took advantage of this situation, it would be too late. He'd have to follow through. He'd have to uh, be responsible. This is a man who potentially has either been widowed or single, and suddenly he's got this very young, attractive woman who's right there, and yet he doesn't fall. Even though it seems like circumstances suggest this would be a good thing. What about for her? How would this help her? Yeah, he'd be obligated to her. The the trap would be very effective, very powerful. And yet what happened? Look at it. Verse 13, he says, remain tonight probably not a good idea for her to be running around in the dark. He's concerned for her protection. He says, in the morning, if he, the other man, will redeem you, good. Imagine that's through gritted teeth. But good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. And so he keeps her there so that she's safe. But nothing happens. So she lay at his feet until the morning but arose before one could recognize another. I don't think this is a reason to change our view of what the Bible says about fleeing. This is a very particular circumstance. I remember one couple that I knew that weren't married and they were traveling cross country and they ended up uh, in a snowstorm, in a blizzard, and the only motel had one room. And so the, uh, the... male half of the relationship phoned her father and said what should we do went through all the possibilities is there another room have you have you told them the situation you know really really pushed on that no there's nothing else so they kept talking kept talking and then he said okay there really is no alternative if it weren't for the fact that it was freezing cold then he would have said mister you sleep in the car let my daughter have the room But it wasn't possible. It was below freezing. He said, okay, here's what I want you to do. You're both to sleep in that room with the lights on, fully clothed, window, I mean, the curtains open. Utterly no compromise. Right? This, I think, is one of those situations. From Boaz's perspective, the right thing to do would be separate. 
but he can't do that because she wouldn't be safe. So I don't think this is an exception that proves that we should not flee compromised situations. Let's always, always flee compromised situations. None of us have the power in ourselves to do the right thing. This is a situation where they chose to, to work the, with the circumstances they had, and in doing so, they honored the Lord. Is that okay? So they, uh, where are we? Verse uh, 15. Well, she arose before one could recognize another. He said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. I think he's saying that probably to her rather than anyone else. Verse 15, and he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she staggered into the city, <laughs> probably, because six measures of barley is, what is that? That's uh, two, between two and four times more than last week. So we're talking major, major weight of, of barley, between 50 and 100 pounds. That's, that's the weight of a, a small human. And so she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Don't know what Naomi was expecting to hear, but she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So he's concerned, even for Naomi. She replied, that, that, by the way, is the final thing Ruth says in the whole book. She'll still be involved, but no more speech from Ruth. And surprisingly, she is not the focus of the book. We'll find out who really is next week. Verse 18, uh, Naomi replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle, settle the matter today. So we're left on a cliffhanger again. What's going to happen? Is this marriage between these two godly people going to come about? Or is the nearer relative who we already want to boo and hiss about because we like Boaz, is he going to get to marry Ruth and be the, the nearer relative for Naomi and Ruth? We'll see that next week. But I think there's some things we need to do in terms of application here. First of all, the whole issue of integrity this is a stunning story of two people who so trust the Lord, in a, not only in a culture that screams the opposite, but in circumstances that are screaming the opposite. They so trust and love the Lord that they don't fall. Don't ever believe that you have no choice. 1 Corinthians 10:13 says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but uh, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, he also says flee from sexual immorality, but there's never a circumstance where you have no option but to sin. Okay, we need to, to really wrestle with the, the gritty realities of, of sexual temptation. Let's think through all of us, doesn't matter what our age, doesn't matter what our gender. Let's think through things like what we're watching. We may not be putting ourselves physically in a dangerous situation necessarily. We'll come to that in a second. But what about the internet? What about the television? What about the remote control? What are we, what are we putting ourselves in front of? Philippians 4.8 says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is right, whatever is praiseworthy, think on such things. Does what we're watching fit the criteria of Philippians 4 verse 8? Uh, speaking of compromising situations, we need to think that through as well. There's a real naivety in our culture today. 
I've even come across it in Christian settings. I've got into uh, situations, I've been on panel discussions in front of uh, crowds of people heading into the mission field where we've discussed issues of, of sexual immorality and temptation and so on. And I've been really strong on you cannot trust yourself and you certainly cannot trust him. <laughs> and yet I've had other people on panels saying, oh, some of my best friends are men and there's nothing in it for them. There's no, they don't like me at all in that way. They just view me as a friend. And I, I have to control myself because I don't want to say something too rude. But I, what I want to say is don't be so stupid. Of course, he, if you ask him, is there anything in this? Of course, he's not going to say yes if he doesn't think it's the right moment. Men tell lies. We shouldn't be naive enough to put ourselves in, in compromised situations with people of the opposite sex. It doesn't take much for entanglements to start to form. I know I've put myself in situations that were just plain stupid. And I, I don't want to do that. And we must not do it. We must commit to not doing that. Otherwise, it doesn't take much. A few comments here and there. And before you know it, there's a, an attraction that is so powerful. Melanie and I have certain guidelines, so I won't give a lift to a, a woman in the car on her own. And so we've had occasions where we've had someone staying with us who's got to catch a six o'clock bus in, in Bristol in the morning, and I've got to get her to the bus stop because Melanie really needs her sleep. And so what do we do? Okay, we take a child. So there have been times where I've got Joel out of bed. What are we doing, Daddy? Don't worry, Joel. I put him in the car, and then I drive the person to the bus stop, and then by that stage, he's kind of awake, and what are we doing? And then we go to McDonald's. He thinks it's wonderful. You know, McDonald's breakfast, wow. Uh, he doesn't even need to know why he's there, but he needs to be there because that's a guideline we've set, and we won't adjust that. You see what I mean? It's, it's practical, tangible things to avoid being in a, a complex, confusing, compromised situation counseling alone. I remember one situation, I was in this church and I'd preached and he, there's something about preaching that anyway, so I preached and afterwards this young lady came bounding up to me. I mean, she was absolutely beautiful young lady and she was uninhibited in her friendly chat. Nothing inappropriate about it, no motivation, but my immediate response was to look around and say, where's Melanie? That's my default in those situations. So, Have you met my wife? Because I don't want anything inappropriate, any entanglement at all. Uh, Melanie, hey, come meet this young lady. You know, and then the three of us, totally fine. Uh, am I some sort of weird prude or, or is that just wise? I'm going with wise. Maybe you've heard the story of Billy Graham early on in his ministry. I forget where it was. Was it Scotland? I'm not sure. But uh, got into a, a hotel, walked into the hotel room and there were two people waiting in the, the wardrobe. One was a woman who wasn't wearing much, and the other was a photographer. In fact, I think uh, somebody got in first. I, I forget the exact details, but from that moment on, if it weren't already the case, he would never enter a room first, because all it would take is one snap of a picture, and it's blown, even if he had perfect integrity. And so he'd always have somebody go in first and check the room. He'd always have two rooms, uh, and to get to his room, he'd have to get through somebody else's room. Is that because he didn't trust himself? Probably. And we shouldn't trust ourselves. We need to be wise, not foolish in these issues. So we need to think that through. But then we need to think through as well, just as we close, what a beautiful picture this is in, in the book of Ruth. What a, what a lesson it is for us 
in terms of the, these two people. Hopefully, I'll leave you hanging for next week on this issue, but hopefully going to be coming together in marriage. What do they bring to this marriage? The culture is all about externals. The culture today, just like the culture back then, would have put the entire emphasis on Ruth, look your best. It's all about how you look. Doesn't culture obsess with that? What does Ruth bring to this marriage? She brings something that he celebrates, and that is her character. There's nothing wrong with external beauty. It's an incredible blessing. Just ask Adam or any married man. Okay, we're all thankful for the unique beauty of our wives. But, but the real beauty, the beauty that lasts and the beauty that grows is the inner beauty, the character. And Ruth had that in abundance. And that's what he talked about. Your, your, your last kindness is, is greater than your first. What, what an, everybody knows the, the kind of woman that you are. You are a wife of noble character. You remember where that phrase is found? How can you find a wife of noble character? That's Proverbs 31, verse 10, I think. And the rest of that chapter is all about finding a wife of noble character. Guess what book comes next in the Hebrew order of the Old Testament? Book of Ruth. After this poem about a wife of noble character, voila, Ruth, a real-life example. Ladies, let me encourage you. As much as culture is going to scream one message in your ear, be sure to hear what the Bible says, that your character is the most beautiful thing that you have, is the most powerful thing that you have. And you bring that to a marriage, God is honored, and your husband will be absolutely blessed beyond words. What does Boaz bring? He's, uh, I suppose, I, I think somebody put it this way, what Boaz brings is not macho in the culture sense. But what he brings is true love, which actually is God's design for the man to love his wife. For example, he provides for Ruth all the way through, giving her barley after barley after barley, right? He's providing for her. He's protecting her, making sure that nobody can hurt her or compromise her. He's praising and affirming her, telling her what wonderful character she has. The words that we speak are so powerful which is why we need to be careful when it's not our wife and why we need to make sure we undo the gate and let the praise come out when it is our wife because the words are so powerful. And fourthly, he honors her. He honors her integrity. He honors her character. He honors her even in that moment when he could have taken full advantage. That's true love. And men, if we're going to be a blessing in marriages, even in our culture, then we need to be lovers in the right sense. Those who genuinely, truly love rather than doing the world's compromised version. She brings character. He brings love. And this marriage, if it can happen, is going to be a beautiful, wonderful thing to behold. We'll see that next week. Let's pray as we close. Lord, we get screamed at by our culture, and the message is not helpful. Help us to hear your word as it speaks into our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that these two honored you, and so they stand as a testament to your work in their lives and their heritage that we celebrate in the person of Jesus Christ. 
We don't know how we fit into your plan, but Lord, we ask that you'd keep us from being disqualified. Keep us from being worked around. Let us be part of what you're doing, whatever that is, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our seats. I just want to add one comment. I know I've gone over and uh, please forgive me. I just think this is really important. There are some of us in this room that just feel really bad about what's happened in the past. You've blown it. And we read a story like this and we, we celebrate Ruth and Boaz and then we just feel terrible about ourselves. We've just been singing about Jesus who came for people, sinners like us. Let's be sure that we take the burdens, the convictions to the cross and say, Lord, forgive me. And then as we move forward, let's take hope from Ruth chapter 3 and say, Lord, from now on, I want to please you and honor you like they did. There's grace. Isn't that a wonderful central truth of the gospel? And so, just as we finish, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen.